Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Part 1 The Engines of Time. I'm writing this account to record the events surrounding my meeting with a man who called himself Victor Christoph. I'm not entirely sure I understand everything that occurred, and certainly do not believe all of Victor's explanations. In any case, I need to write down everything that happened, so I won't forget the details. While I haven't discounted all the aspects of Victor's story, I'll still need to recall as much as possible if I'm going to do any follow-up research on these matters. Perhaps I should start at the beginning, when I first met Victor. It started when I last taught at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow, Poland, one of the oldest universities in Europe, delivering a series of lectures on advanced physics. After heading the quantum mechanics research laboratories at Los Alamos for nearly a decade, I had taken a sabbatical to lecture and tour at major European universities. The trip was part vacation and part public relations for the lab. Despite my initial reservations, I found myself enjoying the notoriety that accompanied the tour, even though it kept me from my research. I'd already been to London, Paris, and St. Petersburg, Russia, but I still had to deliver my four-part seminar on quantum chronodynamics at three more universities before I returned to the States. Of all the places I had lectured, however, I found the University of Krakow to be the strangest. Perhaps their haughty behavior was because the university had been in continuous operation for more than 600 years. They behaved as if they knew everything. In fact, their demeanor went so far as to imply that anything they didn't know wasn't worth learning. While I'd held my audiences wrapped everywhere else, the people who showed up in Krakow yawned loudly, fell asleep, or left early. They weren't even polite enough to pretend to be interested. By the third day, I grew a bit discouraged. Each day, fewer people had attended. By the last day, so few people attended that my presence seemed unnecessary. Perhaps that's probably why I even gave a second thought to the note someone passed me after the final lecture. Normally, I would have just discarded it or dismissed it as a joke. The letter had no stamp and no postmark. Indeed, it didn't even have a full address. It merely said, To Dr. Peter Christoph at the Jaglionian University. Opening it, I found a hastily scrawled request for me to visit a Dr. Victor Christoph at the Tvorky State Psychiatric Hospital in Pruskov, just outside Krakow. At first, I thought it was a joke. My grandparents' family name was Kristoff before the First World War, but they had changed it to Kristoff when they arrived. I didn't know of any relatives in Poland, but that didn't mean there weren't any. The name Victor, however, seemed familiar. Stuffing the note into my jacket pocket, I remembered where I'd heard it before. Examining the letter again, I recalled my grandfather telling me about his uncle Victor, a famous 19th-century scientist, who'd appeared in Europe at the turn of the century. As a boy, having such a famous ancestor made me proud. Maybe that memory was one of the reasons I fell in love with science so many years later. Chuckling to myself, 
I decided to pay a call to Dr. Christoph before I left for Rome. Perhaps a visit to a distant cousin might lighten what had turned into a very gloomy trip. The next afternoon, I rented a car and drove to the Torquay Hospital. The facility was quite close, but well off the main road. After several few wrong turns, I finally found it at the end of a long, narrow cobblestone driveway, which wove its way up a long, tree-covered hill. The hospital occupied a small stone castle that had been converted while under the communist regime. The courtyard, where the drive ended, offered a spectacular view of the surrounding countryside and overlooked a breathtaking valley with woodlands in full autumn display of dazzling reds and brilliant yellows. The large cobblestone parking lot led right up to huge, ornate wooden doors. When I rang the bell, an attendant greeted me, inviting me to enter. I stepped into a spacious foyer and asked to see Dr. Christoph. She looked at me with surprise, and I wondered for a moment if she didn't speak English. Producing the note, I told her I'd been invited, pointing at the name. She took the letter and read it. Then she excused herself, speaking perfect English, and disappeared through a doorway behind her desk. Moments later, a physician dressed in a white smock appeared. Grinning, I offered my hand and said, Dr. Christoph, I'm Dr. Peter Christoph, and I've come in response to your invitation. As a matter of fact, I think we might be distant cousins. The doctor shook my hand, but waved the letter in his other hand. I'm afraid you have made a mistake. I'm not Victor Christoph. My name is Dr. Vladik Brzezinski, and I'm the hospital administrator. Victor Christoph is a patient here. My jaw dropped in surprise, and I stood dumbfounded. The doctor gave me a moment to adjust and then said, If you follow me, I will take you to Victor. Regaining my composure, I followed him through a locked entryway and down a long, austere hallway. As we walked, he spoke. I'm surprised to meet you, Dr. Christoph. I know who you are, of course. You're quite famous. There are a few world-class physicists of Polish heritage, and people around here consider you to be something of a local hero. Indeed, your seminars at Jagiellonian drew great notice in the local newspapers. I regret I specialized in medicine instead of physics, and would not understand your lectures at all. The doctor seemed genuinely interested but whether it was real or just good bedside manner, I couldn't tell. I muttered a thank you, but disregarded the doctor's praise. Instead, I worried who Victor was and what warranted his admission to a psychiatric hospital. In response to my unasked question, my escort explained, Another reason I'm surprised to meet you is that we don't know of your relation to Victor. We searched for nearly two years to find friends or relatives who might know him but failed. Is he? I started to ask. No, he said. Victor is perfectly all right. He is not violent, schizophrenic, or retarded, but he suffers from the head injury he sustained before his arrival here. He was gravely injured when he arrived and had total amnesia for more than six months. Even after two years, his memories remain incomplete. His injury may have caused some brain damage, and I fear he'll never fully recall his former life. As a result, he suffers from a delusional disorder. Since gaps exist in his memory, 
Victor's mind has begun making up memories to fill in the missing portions of his real ones. Naturally, he is lonely and afraid. The doctor knocked gently on the door, and when there was no response, he opened it, peeked in, and gestured for me to follow. I cautiously entered and found myself in a small room with a tiny bunk and a desk. The barred window looked out on the beautiful countryside I'd admired earlier. At the desk sat a scraggly-haired man busy writing with his back to me. Dr. Brzezinski coughed gently. Victor? Victor, you have a guest. The man at the desk stopped writing and looked up. Upon seeing us, he jumped up from his chair and stood for a moment, blinking in disbelief. He tugged and straightened his tattered terry cloth robe. When he ran his fingers through his dark hair, I could see a long, jagged scar on the left side of his forehead. He smiled, grabbed my hand, and started shaking it eagerly. Dr. Kristoff, Dr. Kristoff, he said, you must have gotten my letter. I knew you would come, I just knew it. You have no idea what this means to me. Dr. Brzezinski cleared his throat. If you will excuse me, gentlemen, I have work to attend to. Dr. Kristoff, you may of course stay as long as you wish. Just contact the nurse at the end of the hall when you're ready to leave. Turning, he closed the door behind him as he left. Victor stopped shaking my hand and offered me his chair. Then he hurried over to his desk and removed a stack of papers from the desk drawer, taking a seat on his bunk opposite me. I sat hesitantly, wondering what to say, wondering about what I'd just gotten myself into. Ah, I assume you wrote me because you think we're related, I said. Victor smiled. Ah, my grandfather came to America in 1916 and changed his name from Christoph to Christoph soon thereafter. When I was small, he told me about an uncle he had, named Victor, were probably distant cousins. I felt self-conscious and awkward. I didn't know what else to add. Victor nodded and listened attentively. Then he grinned once more and said, I didn't know that. I missed the similarity in our names and had no idea we were related. I wrote you because of your work in... He stopped and shuffled through his stack of notes. Your work in quantum chronodynamics. He spoke the words hesitantly, as if speaking a new language. I chuckled, realizing that he was. It was a language my colleagues and I had been developing for years. His broad grin showed genuine delight. What an amazing and wonderful coincidence that we should meet like this. Who would have thought little Gustav would have gone to America and I would meet his grandson nearly a century later? I blinked and sputtered. What? Gustav? Yes, Victor said. Little Gustav, my nephew. Of course, he was only about six when I last saw him. Let's see, that was in 1902. So he would have been about 20 when he went to America, right? I nodded mutely, then stopped, realizing I was agreeing with a man who claimed to be my great-grand-uncle, a man who disappeared nearly a century ago. Yet he looked younger than I. <laughs> but that's ridiculous, I said. Victor died at the turn of the century. You're... I stopped myself again, recognizing that it probably wasn't wise to call an inmate of a psychiatric hospital crazy. Delusions indeed, I thought, remembering the administrator's warning. 
This guy has a serious mental problem. Suddenly worried for my personal safety, I glanced at the door to see if I could make a quick getaway. But Victor reached over and gently grabbed my arm, saying, Please wait, Dr. Kristoff. I really didn't write you to make such an outrageous claim. I wrote because you're one of the world's foremost scientists and an expert on the nature of time. I need your help. Releasing my arm, he lowered his eyes for a moment before looking up again. You see, I was involved in an accident, which nearly killed me. It robbed me of my life, my family, and most of my memories. I've spent two years in this hospital recovering, and for most of that time I too thought I'd lost my mind. But now, now I finally think I understand what happened to me. Sitting back down, his fingers squirmed and tightened around the papers in his hands. I don't know if it is a twist of fate that brought us here, or simply great coincidence, but please, please listen to me before you go. I remained ambivalent. I didn't know whether to listen or to flee. His demeanor seemed that of a rational man, but everything he said was increasingly bizarre. If I were you, Dr. Kristoff, I would be skeptical, too. If I hadn't experienced what I've been through, I wouldn't believe a word. Nonetheless, I am Dr. Victor Kristoff. I was born in Poznan in 1868, and I am a victim of a disastrous discovery, which I must tell someone about. It was then, when he'd finally said it, when he finally made that impossible claim, that I should have gotten up and left. But something in his manner held me. The calm and confident way he said it made it sound so... plausible. I found myself patiently listening as he told his tale. I taught, you know, at the university here in Krakow back in 1895, he said. I had a full professorship and had earned my doctorate in physics from the University of Leipzig in 1891. My biggest problem was that, while I loved to teach, I enjoyed research far more. Unfortunately, there were few such opportunities in Poland. I therefore worked alone while maintaining a full schedule of classes. I never did get any money, though, to fund any experiments. My specialty was mathematics, and my passion, he said, was trying to understand the nature of time. That is your area of expertise, isn't it, Dr. Kristoff? Time? Uh, yes, I said. Quantum chronodynamics is the branch of science which studies what happens to matter and energy when you break things down into the tiniest pieces of time. Actually, it's the science of what happens between those moments of time. That's where the miracle of creation and matter and energy reside. Realizing that I had recited pieces of my lectures to this madman, I stopped. Was I having a discussion with another scientist, or was I feeding the delusions of a lunatic? Yes, it's what happens between the tiniest slices of time that the magic of the universe is revealed, said Victor. Is it true that this quantum mechanics shows that time can flow either direction at an atomic level? Yes, that's correct, I said cautiously. All fundamental processes are reversible at the subatomic level. It is only at macroscopic scales that time appears to pass. We call it the arrow of time, and we're still trying to understand why it points in only one direction. 
Exactly, shouted Victor, as he jumped up from the bunk. I jerked my chair back, half ready to bolt out the door. Shaking, he composed himself. Once more, he took hold of his papers in both hands and forced himself to sit back down. That's exactly what I told my colleagues, but no one would listen. I actually got myself in quite a bit of trouble when I tried to publish papers saying time was an illusion and that it actually flowed in both directions. Everyone thought me mad. Victor stopped himself. He turned his head to look at the bars across his window, and tears came to his eyes. People still think I am mad, he said. I apologize, Dr. Christoph. You must think me demented at best. But please listen to my story. I suddenly felt sorry for him. I reminded myself he still suffered from head trauma. The poor man's distress was obvious, and he still struggled with his delusions. Nevertheless, the man did not appear to be violent, merely frustrated. At that moment, he looked so tired and so forlorn, I took pity on him. Finally, I nodded, deciding to listen, if only because he needed to talk to someone. I resolved that no matter how bizarre or outlandish his story became, I'd hear him out. After all, I never had to come back. This is the story Victor told me. Victor was a man fascinated with the notion of time. As a physics professor, he considered it the most important and least understood of the physical constants of the universe. Mass, electric charge, and distance were far more tangible than the mysterious concept of time. His research into the temporal nature of physics, however, was unproductive until a colleague who taught world religions at the university provided an essential clue. His friend explained that many religions believe the past, present, and future all exist simultaneously. The Greeks, for instance, had two opposing views of time. The first involved an arbitrary point in time, chronos, which separated the past, the present, and the future. These attributes were embodied in the personas of the Fates, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. The other concept described a concurrent moment of time, Kairos, an unmeasurable, uncontrollable, timeless moment that has never occurred before and will never occur again. His colleague argued that man's true nature would not be revealed until individuals could perceive Kairos and see the past, present, and future all at once. It was a state that many religions associated with the highest levels of enlightenment. Since Victor's own theories could not explain the reason time flowed in one direction, he took an immediate liking to this model. When Victor first proposed to his colleagues his theory that the flow of time was an illusion and that the arbitrary flow of time was at odds with the true nature of the universe, his fellow professors laughed and suggested he write about it like the new English author Herbert G. Wells. They did not understand that Victor had spoken in earnest. Undaunted, Victor continued to refine his theories, but he met with continuing opposition from his peers. When he proposed that all physical reactions were reversible at the smallest levels, the chemists at the university laughed at him. 
when he claimed time was an illusion and that, therefore, entropy did not exist. He outlined experiments and tests to prove his theories. The university denied his requests for funds. Eventually, in what he considered to be simple logic, Victor came to a new conclusion. If man's perception of time was at odds with the true nature of the universe, then something must have caused this unique yet inaccurate perspective. He decided the flow of time was an artificial phenomenon, somehow imposed upon mankind. He became convinced some force or agency purposefully distorted man's awareness. As his work progressed, he became obsessed with this idea. When he made this claim publicly, his colleagues called his theories insane, and they denounced him as delusional. He was unable to convince a single one of his fellow professors that the illusion of time was the result of some unknown process, which affected man like some form of mass hallucination. When he persisted, they ostracized him from their ranks, and Victor eventually left the university. Confident in his own theories, however, he continued his studies alone. Soon, he began a new quest to identify or find this external agency, which created man's illusion of time. Only then would his claims be proven true. Searching for supportive evidence, he researched ancient myths and legends. He ardently believed these stories held seeds of truth, which would explain this mystery. Victor explained that he discovered several curious things from his research. He found many recurrent themes and stories of different cultures, every mythos told of magic creatures that controlled time. The Celts had stories of the Shea, fairies, and elves. When outsiders encountered them, the adventurers might spend a day there visiting, only to return home to find years or decades had passed. He even cited the American story of Rip Van Winkle as an example of how these creatures controlled man's perception of time. These same cultural myths, he asserted, had other elements in common. In each of them, these magical creatures were immortal and far more powerful than mortal men, but nonetheless had weaknesses. In some stories, the creatures feared iron or cold steel. In ghost stories, wraiths could not pass over running water. In still others, the magical creatures could only be destroyed by special magic stones. To Victor, all of these were important clues. As I listened to him, I marveled at Victor's ability to assemble disparate facts to fit his own ridiculous theories. It was one of the worst examples of subjective bias influencing research that I had ever seen. His conclusions were base rationalizations. Nevertheless, Victor decided these creatures really existed and that they somehow distorted or controlled man's sense of time. Moreover, he decided the stories revealed the true weakness of these creatures. To Victor, these clues meant these mythical creatures could not tolerate magnetic fields. He argued that iron was lethal to fairies and elves because ferrous metal could be enchanted or magnetized. He added that running water was a conductor, and electric currents through waterways created magnetic fields that were inimical to these beings. The magic stones, he decided, were lodestones, naturally occurring magnets. 
The creatures in these stories must, therefore, eschew magnetic fields. In another unjustified leap of logic, Victor concluded that there were only two places where these creatures would reside. At the one of Earth's two magnetic poles, where the magnetic field lines were weakest. He went on to explain that, since these creatures seemed to appear in different locations over the years, the Earth's magnetic poles must drift over time. In 1904, the former professor sold his home and all his possessions to fund a private expedition to search for these creatures. He commissioned the construction of extremely powerful magnets and even purchased chemical batteries, which could power strong electric currents through wire windings, thus creating extremely powerful magnetic fields. He then embarked with a small group of hirelings to the northern regions of Russia, where he was convinced these beings could be found. This story is continued in the next episode.